Hi and welcome back. You're watching Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. My name is Julian Guderlei and I'm here today with Terry Patton. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. Good to be here with you, Julian. Yeah, it's great to have you. Terry is a philosopher, a spiritual teacher, an author, and his newest book has a name, A New Republic of the Heart. And that's really what we're going to dive into today and quite deeply is the Republic of the Heart and what it can mean to live from the heart so much so that it is turning into maybe even a new way of reality for, for all, all of humankind. So Terry, like, let's, let's jump right into the, the good parts. Um, I've read parts of your book. I loved it. It felt like a manual to like a living instruction almost. Where did that download or that inspiration or that clarity come from to write a book like that? Well, this book is kind of my magnum opus. Uh, I've been trying, you know, my sense for a long time has been that the world has plenty of books, doesn't really need another book inherently. So although I have many friends who are prolific authors who've written 10, 15, 20 books, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a single book that would really make a difference. If I was going to ask busy people in this crazy interruption-driven world to take the time that it takes, even to listen to the audiobook, you know, to really deal with something uh, rich, I wanted it to be entirely worth their time. So I wrote this book four times. I threw out the first three drafts. Wow. I've been working on it for 20 plus years, actually. Because I sensed the uh, what time it is on the planet. It, it, I've been paying close attention to that. You know, in a sense, I've been an, an active, metasystemic futurist for a long, long time, both a spiritual practitioner and a social entrepreneur and activist. And so the, the what 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 I what I kept feeling and, and, and continue to feel is that there are really important bottom line truths that if they're not understood, our conversation becomes superficial or inauthentic or idealistic or in some way it isn't adequate. So I needed to bring in some important uh, scientific understandings, evolutionary theory, neuroscience, uh, game theory, spiritual truths, integral theory, uh, a variety of important dimensions of thought had to be integrated in order to help people go through a feeling shift. Because really, we're being asked to be a new kind of human being in this time. And it took me a long time to identify and find a way to kind of gracefully and holistically include all these different dimensions in, a, in an integrated way so that the serious reader who really takes this book to heart goes through a, you know, a series of epiphanies or insights or energetic shifts or a little awakenings, you might say, that together constellate another order of shift. Because we're really asked right now to be a new kind of human being. And as bright and clear as we are, you know, we all grow up in our world and we're patterned to it. And yet that world is about to change so dramatically that 
the old pattern isn't going to serve us. And how we become that new kind of person is what this book is, is a meditation and a, in a sense, an instruction manual relating to. Wow. That, that sets, us up, sets us up for a very deep conversation. So maybe start with those kind of integral pieces that need to be set into place before we even start on that journey, where um, you said it, it's about three of them that, that need to really be clarified in, in any conversation to really know. It's actually who... more. <laughs> I mean, the first big thing is recognizing just what time it is on the planet. And part of that is recognizing the, the, the nature of disruptive change and the nature of our evolutionary and historical moment. And part of that is going past some really powerful emotional and psychological boundaries that we have against feeling the implications of what we know from, from you know, the science around climate change or around other aspects of uh, the sixth extinction, the ecological predicament. We, those things tend to seem so depressing and dark that we don't tend to fully take it into account and let it serve our growth and our awakening and our, and our, these are evolutionary drivers for, for us to become more authentic, like avoiding those truths doesn't serve us, but understanding them in a way that doesn't make them just kind of crushingly depressing is, is crucial. So I, I deal with that very much at the very beginning of the book in a way that also frames the fact that we're living in a miraculous time, a time in which a lot of dramatic, wonderful changes are also ready to break open. That our future is unpredictable, not just because of the bad news, but because of the amazingly good potentials. And, and yet the way those will interact with the dark potentials, hard to predict. So there's a lot around that. Then there's some foundational philosophical uh, understandings about the, the nature of fragmentation, of wholeness, mm -hmm. of an evolutionary worldview, really understanding ourselves in deep time, because a deep time perspective drives home just how big our current ecological predicament. I mean, we have crises right now that are political and cultural and economic, the financial system, education, healthcare, you name it, the, the world on, on a large scale is going through lots of different critical shifts, but far more profound and fundamental than any of the societal and cultural issues are, are our fundamental relationship to the living earth, which is right now in a completely unsustainable path. And the uh, combining ourselves with that in in a way that doesn't that, that neither avoids the profound uh, initiatory seriousness of that situation at all really really faces fully faces everything with no holding back and partakes of the completely liberating and uh, inspiring and gratitude evoking reality of the miracle of life in this moment. You know, that, that in a way, if we're really awake to what's going on, we're grateful, we're happy, we're 
free. We're we're and we're opening into a kind of freedom. The more darkened and hev and and heavy we get, we're a little crazy. I mean, it's a kind of insanity. And so, how to really partake of that and share that with each other and have a conversation that's rooted in those insights, that also faces these really really sobering civilizational, you know, the whole human race. We need each other in a whole different way, and and yet. How is it that I need that brotherhood or sisterhood with that Trump supporting person who's actively hating on me? And, and, and how do I uh, arrive in a, in, a, in a place in myself that's adequate to all that? That requires a profundity of my very presence. And, and, and so there's that, so a lot of lessons about spiritual practice, the intelligence of the heart, understanding its dimensionality that are a piece of this book. And then there's a, a, a conversation about conversation, you might say, a conversation with my reader about all the different ways we can make a difference in the system, protesting against things that are that need to be challenged, but also working around the system in very creative ways, which I think we're doing right now in having this public conversation. But there are many other things, you know, from educating girls in the third world to innovating alternatives to fossil fuels to uh, founding eco-villages or other intentional communities or creative initiatives. That the idea of a new republic of the heart came to me as I essentially wanted to observe something is coming into being. A new pattern is already constellating among us and our friends and many people we don't know. The very health of the human system is resurging right now in the face of a profound existential crisis of fragmentation. Things do seem to be flying apart and, be, and, and like an immune response, everything in us that expresses the health and wholeness of being is being asked to come forward. But it operates in every individual heart. Like part of us is freaked out and scared and tending to want to hide from things. That's part of our fragmentation. That's part of how fragmentation is expressing itself in me. Right, yeah. And another part of us is saying, wait a second, you know, the worst that can happen to me is that I die and I lose everything I love. And that's going to happen no matter what. So how do I want to live? Who do I want to be? I want to be, even if I can't be sure that I can save the world or be part of a pattern in which the health of the world successfully reasserts itself, I want to be part of the health of things, even if it's too late. I want to be you know, I, I, I want to write my name in the book of life in a healthy way. And in, in that way, I, I cease to be only focused on, well, can we make it or won't we make it? You know, no, unconditional commitment. I'm, I'm here to be that which can turn this around if it can be turned around. And I'll learn and I'll help others learn what works better, what doesn't work better through the process of my radical commitment. So there's a lot that's more existential, you might say, rather than drawing on a spiritual tradition. It, it's just rational, but it, 
it has to do with our, our core spirit. And there's a lot about conversation, about relationships, communities of practice, new levels of friendship, new levels of, like, we're, we're up against some questions that we need each other to solve. And yeah, we're, we're trying, but we have to go further. We're all being asked to go further than we've ever gone. That's very interesting to me. I hear a few words and concepts that I want to go quite, quite a bit deeper. And I think overarching is this understanding of radical wholeness and how it kind of re-encompasses all the fragmentation and brings them together in, in the individual, but then also in the collective. But maybe before, and this might web through the entire conversation, but before we go into radical wholeness as a concept, what I would love to understand is you, you touched on it, this part of the fragmentation that isn't all of us, that's scared, that is um, irrationally questioning everything at times, right? How do we address this in ourselves in a world that seems to just operate under this one motto, this is fake it until you make it, right? Which I think has its upsides, but also has the downside of, of, of simply not creating relationship. It doesn't even allow for relationship because if you're not part of my faking it path, I don't even have time to build an authentic relationship with you. Well, you know, this whole world, this whole life, is a school in you know th those who have really given themselves over to the traditions of human wisdom according to the path of the soul as distinct from transcendental spirituality are all always talking about the journey of the soul and the journey of the soul is deepened by confrontations with things that you know, with challenges and opportunities that break the mold of what we're already able to easily metabolize and, and work with. So we're being, we're being tested. I mean, I, when I grew up, I thought that I would live in a open, wealthy, liberal Western democracy and that I didn't even need to vote or participate at all as a citizen in order to be guaranteed that that would be the world I would live in my whole life. And the sense that that's threatened is, is destabilizing. I, like I, I only know how to be a person in, in a certain context and so does everybody else. And we tend to think that a change to that would be too horrible to contemplate and, and, and those things destabilize us, but we're, we're being asked to go deeper and, and the darkness makes you go deeper. But then the bright nature of our undivided wholeness takes us deeper in yet a different way, deeper than your fear and despair, is the inherent beauty and goodness of existence. And it will draw you to it deeper than your grief over the desecration of the balances of the natural world is the way that even if it is unbalanced, the beauty and wholeness of nature is holding you and your love for the mother earth and father, son, and all the rest are, uh, are a source of uh, sanity and wholeness that 
you need to in, you need to metabolize at an even deeper level after you've been destabilized by a confrontation with everything that you tend to recoil from. So there's a a cycle, a, a spiraling that goes into what's hard and then into what's liberating at deeper and deeper levels as we continue to grow. And we, you know, according to this dharma around soul work, we all, in some sense, our souls consented to be born in this time and in this place. This is your time. It isn't as if oh, it would have been so much better if you were born 50 years earlier and you could have lived in a time when you didn't have to face these particular challenges, just yeah. other ones. No, you are fitted to this. You're built for this trip. You are one whose time as a, and, and for each of us in different ways, I'm, I'm significantly older than you, but I was born for this time too. I was born to be entering into my elderhood at this time, able to offer those gifts. You're born in order to be coming into your prime during years in which the whole shooting match is gonna be up for examination and transformation. And therefore, the, the time itself, like your word, the German word, Zeitgenossen, time comrade. We are contemporaries, we're comrades in this time. And that brings together so much because our time is such a pressurized intensity. And it's asking for the very best of your character and your leadership and your, your capacity to get beyond the game of being a persona and really being love in action, wholeness in action at deeper and more inclusive and more generous and generative and courageous and creative levels. That's, that's what you were born for. And that's what the world needs from you and me and everyone. So the fluctuation in and out of this elements of suffering or this, these, these illusions of, um, well, distress, are those just invitations for deeper surrender to wholeness or deeper um, like embracing of understanding that I'm actually here to embody this wholeness through me as the heart that I am, the soul that I am? Is that, is that what, what the purpose of any challenge truly is? Or is that maybe too simple to, to just write it off as a, an opportunity for growth? Well, I think every way that we summarize it that simplifies it has, holds a truth, but it looks away from some other things. I tend to notice the nuances that a summary like that doesn't include. but it's a, there's some wisdom in what you say there. I don't really need to struggle with it, but I would say part of what we're learning is a deepening of our character on every level. And part of it is there, there is a reason to grieve. There are going, you know, many, many species are going extinct. Many beautiful places are being desecrated. The, the disruption of the climate and the disruption of the ecological balances creates enormous uh, loss. And letting yourself feel that and grieve that is part of being fully human. It isn't that we should always only feel good. We, we should get in touch with a, an okayness that is so profound that it can even hold the most searing 
kinds of grief and, and, and loss and, and not make us superficial, always just trying to feel good. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because when I look at this society and I look at my own psyche and the way that these waves of growth have occurred, um, well, in me and, and through me and, and the way I've embodied it myself, I think the word happiness in our modern society comes back around every other time. Like, what is happiness? The pursuit of happiness. Isn't happiness like a birthright, like something we're all actually entitled to? And, and then the polarity of people who are clearly ha having a much harder time or much less privileged time, but have possibly such an e easier access to be satisfied and, and, and happiness. And I've experienced it myself in, in many places in the world that aren't as privileged as the places I grew up in. Um, and then the, quite the opposite, people in very privileged environments um, have a hard time to be satisfied with the sheer abundance that's, that's surrounding us. So to kind of bring that back to your question, what does happiness really mean for you in that context? Well, for me, there are multiple kinds of awakenings that have been going on in my life. And my book actually uses the pun of, you know, the political idea of getting woke and the spiritual idea of awakening are, are both using the same essential metaphor about sleep and, and, and wake, wakefulness. There are many different awakenings that are part of my way of understanding things. And um, there is no simple reductive definition of happiness that's sufficient. I'm, I'm, there's a limit on my happiness if I'm afraid to feel part of what's in my reality. If I'm narrowing myself down and contracting my view, that, that's a loss of some measure of my total humanity. If I'm unable to grapple with what is real in a way that brings me to a place of integrity and authenticity and, and, and conscious participation because it's too much for me, that, that limits my happiness in a different way. If I'm so preoccupied with myself that I don't notice you and I don't recognize in a way that right now the biggest problems in my life and the biggest problems in your life, they're the same problems. To be alive in this time, to be Zeitgenossen here and now with the whole living earth destabilized, we've all been given an amazing, impossible question by life, a koan, a Japanese Zen riddle that's impossible to answer. You know, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or show me your original face, the one you had before your parents were born. Well, the question we have now is, well, how can you be a creature of this extractive, consumptive human civilization who's grown up totally dependent on patterns of life and consumption that are terminating the body of life? And how can you be a presence of wholeness and health and harmony? And how can you be a stand for the future and for future generations? How can you live with goodness and truth and beauty in the midst of this seeming contradiction? And really, my best answer to that needs you, needs another. It, it, the, that koan 
can't be answered by a separate individual. It has to be answered by a human collective. So all the barriers where I'm just trying to succeed and excel and the way we define ourselves as competitors and our personal success and our personal ego is the whole point. That's getting washed away. It's our collective capacity to embody wholeness that's being asked for. It's our capacity for friendship and cooperation are being asked for at a whole new level. And that's an exploration. How could I be available to be less bound by this story of separation that dominates our public culture? So we're in these questions together if we're really being real. And we're being grown, we're being changed by them. Just like the Zen monk wakes up from his koan practice, maybe we are being pressurized so that we will wake up together in a new relationship to these impossible questions that our times are asking us. Yeah, very beautiful, actually. Very, very profound, uh, your, your words, Terry. I, I think the role of media has, has a, a very large puzzle piece to play with, right? The, the way to constantly engage people into patterns of disruption or hopefully a, a form of media that um, to everyone listening, you're part of right now and you're more than welcome to also engage or, or write comments or, or ask questions and, and simply be part of it. The way of media that is kind of being birthed, which is a conscious form of sharing this journey together and relating with each other, even through the media we create, produce and consume. That's one of my hopes, one of my dreams is that that will come more and more into, into importance and our consciousness will open itself from this, this uh, consuming to numb uh, into a next kind of era. I would love to step into another word or another concept that I, I, I know is kind of at the, at the heart of your work and it is the integral heart, the concept of the integral heart. If I'm not mistaken, you. You work with Ken Wilber um, on, um, on these concepts as well, and you have quite a long kind of history of, of working out these ideas and these concepts. So maybe introduce the concept of the integral heart as if somebody hasn't really come across it yet. Okay. Well, the first thing I... I, I... I did work closely with Ken for a long time. Um, some, someone else I worked very closely with uh, before I worked with Ken were all the folks at the Institute of HeartMath. And at the Institute of HeartMath, the fundamental idea is that the heart is a center of intelligence in the human system. And that in some ways it's a senior intelligence to the merely mental intelligence in the head. And so the Institute of HeartMath has been a, a really quite dynamic source for a lot of biomedical research that explores what the, there's a field called neurocardiology. And sometimes it's even, uh, uh, they add another phrase to uh, uh, include the, uh, the glandular secretions, but you know, essentially the heart is integrated with the rest of our neurology such that many people talk about the brain in the heart. And it is as if there's another center of actual intelligence and it, there's a great deal of research to support that. There's actually a third brain in the gut and that's the field of uh, 
uh, neuroenterology uh, or sometimes gastroenterology. And that is the study of the brain in the gut. And each of them have different aspects of intelligence that are, that are processed. A, a certain amount of what goes on in the gut really is just our vegetative intelligence, like helping us digest our food and know kind of how to organize our life energy and our blood circulation and so forth in order to prioritize what we need biologically. But the brain and the gut also is like a source of a kind of street savvy. Uh, in recent years, pondering how, uh, you know, Donald Trump has been a big factor in many people's consciousness. And that, you know, he's very, very smart in a way, but he's not so smart in some other ways. And what, what is that kind of intelligence? It, it's an instinctive understanding about power and advantage. And, and that is a gut level uh, kind of intelligence. Well, the heart is a center of more intuitive knowledge and uh, a kind of understanding of where our sanity comes from. The, the heart is, for one thing, it's an affirmation of survival. Just even the heartbeat itself, pa-pum, 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 pa-pum. It's a, it's a steady, and, and, and when, when the heart is in a healthy pattern, that steadiness is kind of like, it steadies the whole being. The heart is not panicking. The heart is able to see a longer view. The heart has variety of forms of intelligence. And the esoteric traditions actually unpack this even further than we did at HeartMath. They talk about the heart uh, on the left, the gross physical heart, the heart in the center, the subtle psychic heart, and the heart on the right, the, uh, at the, the sinoatrial node, the place where the heartbeat originates actually is on the right side of the chest. And that's the seat of consciousness itself, the seat of non-dual awakeness itself, the witness. And there are different dimensions, therefore, of our heart intelligence. The, the intelligence of the head can be fooled relatively easily in ways the heart isn't fooled. So the, the heart complements our mental intelligence in important ways. Integral heart intelligence is about the whole intelligence of the whole system that incorporates our gut level intelligence and our mental intelligence. But the place where our total intelligence integrates is at the very center of the being, at the heart. So I use this term integral heart intelligence to talk about uh, an, an, an intelligence that balances it all. So it's not moving from the head to the heart. It's a matter of arriving at an integrated intelligence that happens to be more centered at the heart than anywhere else, but which is absolutely respectful of all the unique brilliance of our amazing brains and, and our gut level intelligence as well. Fascinating. I feel like it's in the individual body of us as a human, in the integral heart, as you name it, and the same in this fragmentation of our collective, really embracing each fragment, each puzzle piece, on the inside, but also on the, on the larger outside into wholeness, right? Really not just realizing and becoming aware of each uniqueness, but almost like empowering and encouraging all the uniqueness to flow and be together and kind of embody both sides of, of all polarities as well. 
it That's seems true. To me, it seems to me that arriving at a place of integral heart-centeredness or clarity of that that heart-centeredness there is like a profound inside journey to be made do you think that's the the only way to really get there or do you think there is hope for for humanity to to kind of get that faster in in in, in this sorry in like lacking better terms myself right now is there a way for us to arrive at this place of clarity well I don't think that we can outsmart the evolutionary process itself. To some degree, we're becoming so aware that we're becoming awake as the ground of being, the life itself, you know. We're, we're becoming the eyes of evolution, seeing itself for the first time through the mirrors of the Hubble telescope and, the, you know, this, the, the, the vast story of evolution. You know, the, they sometimes say if... You leave hydrogen and helium alone long enough, they eventually become ferns and antelopes and alligators, and then they uh, write uh, symphonies and build cathedrals and send telescopes into orbit and take photographs and wonder at the meaning of it all. Hydrogen and helium do these things. We are the eyes of that process. And so, in a way, we're, 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 we're dealing with something so much bigger that we as heroic individuals, you know, kind of have to recontextualize our heroism. But I think that there's this enormous well of heroism in my heart and in your heart and in the hearts of everyone hearing these words. We actually are willing to step forward at a different level, and, and our times are going to call for that. They already are beginning to, but we're going to see that more and more clearly. So I think that the, the, the constellation of forces are going to create an opening for what's healthiest and best in us to actually hear its cue and come on stage and show up. And a big part of that is going to be, okay, you know, your way of being a person is good, but it's being asked to upgrade. Your way of being a, a meditator is but it's asked to upgrade. Your way of being a worker and a contributor, asked for an up. Your way of being in friendships. It's good. It's good. It's not to make anything wrong. But a new level of human, you know, there's a new level of human adulthood is being called for. Why wouldn't there be a new level of friendship, a new level of yeah. community, a new level of everything? And I think we're all a little bit like our eyes are bugged out. Oh, what an exciting time to be alive. It is truly an exciting time to be alive. And I can attest to what you're saying in my own life's journey over the last 15, 10, five years, the, the challenge to upgrade is a constant. There is, there is no uh, consistency in how I even experience myself. And it's quite challenging um, for me as an individual, but then I can, I can see that for others who are trying to relate or put me into boxes or put themselves into boxes, all these concepts just fall away because they're not even, they're not even relevant anymore. So when That's we're cool. going into those kind of times and as we're evolving into that kind of a species, and you're saying it, those are really exciting times because I personally even truly believe all the challenges we're facing um, on this earth, including our relationship with earth, are challenges that we can find a very different um, solutions or scenarios to if, if we choose to so that kind of leads me to my, my my favorite question which is 
very funny because you're, you basically wrote an entire book about it. And the question is, if we as humanity had a shared vision for our planet, for our relationship with the planet, for our relationship with each other, and that vision was spanning the next 200 years, what do you, what do you think? What do you, what do you ponder? What is your, your piece of it that you'd like to share? Like, how could that vision for Earth truly look like? Well, I think um, there are so many way, things I could say. There's so many pieces of this that whatever I'm going to say right now is somewhat of an arbitrary sampling. I'm, I've thought pretty deeply about it in a lot of different ways. One aspect of, of, that, of that vision, I think I'd like to stay with the more personal levels of it. I think that one aspect of that vision has to do with our recovering our capacity for self-transcending heroism. It's quite possible that human populations will reduce. It may be that we'll come up with solutions, technological and other solutions that won't require that, but it, whether it does or not, for us to live our lives the way the Greeks did, they lived it for glory and what they, you know, they idealized that like dying well on the battlefield being being a, a sacrifice for the, the, the city-state, you know, that, that was a, a, a good death, a life well-lived. Well, that is an old, mythic, pre-modern conception, but I think that we're going we're gonna to resurrect a post-ironic capacity for high art, for high heroism, for higher ideals. We're going to get to a place where we're really going to accept our mortality at a whole different level and not let that negate us. We're going to actually be able to love each other, hold each other as we slip from this life in a way that gathers the human virtue and nobility so that all of the ways that I'm being in integrity, that all the ways in which I'm being courageous, all the ways in which I'm pressing the envelope and thinking beyond, you know, I, what, I can't take that with me. If I can give that to you and you can be enlarged by that, and there's a bond between us of gratitude, manly standing together for something greater than your life or mine, everything is enhanced. Our lives become meaningful in a different way. Our friendships become vital in a different way. And out of that, maybe we, what is ahead of us will be a great, hospice project and you know that's the kind of thing we fear but maybe it will be a transformation of human life into very glorious possibilities i think that both are so likely that it's hard to exactly see how they fit together we, we, we don't know exactly how this is going to go my vision for how we pull this off has to do with communities of practice conversations that really matter, that go past where we were before, mm -hmm. friendships of a different level, communities where we marry one another, where we become committed and we learn what it takes. For the most part, the little communities that people have formed, these utopian communities, eco-villages, sanghas of practitioners and so forth, they have had their own life cycle. They have something good about them, they blossom for a time, 
and in the mix of life, they have a lifespan and they decline and they all have some cultic aspects, but the world, this big chaotic, undifferentiated, larger context, that's the thing that per perseveres. But our world as a whole is on this collision course with its own destruction. We're gonna have to secede from the union and create some different agreements that have coherence, that are a little bit more like those social experiments. So I think that those social experiments can happen upon new patterns for being human, new ways of being friends and fellow practitioners and communities that will advance the art until we reach a critical level of coherence and you might say wisdom, love, friendship, whatever, such that those patterns actually re, you know, they solve the problem better than anything before. And evolutionary theory would Im imply that what's coming next is a human superorganism. So our little pilot projects may create one other fragment of the psychosocial DNA of that new human pattern and somebody else will come up with another piece and eventually something will cohere and we'll really be able to be a different kind of society. And I think giving ourselves to that and, and valuing that and, 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 and applauding and really being grateful to one another for all the goodness we can bring. I think these are going to be great years. They're going to be, you know, it's like on the outside, it looks like this, you know, those of us living in wealthy Western democracies, like we have these, just these nice lives and everything is very harmonious. At another level, we're in the midst of a, uh, an action movie, a war movie, you know, everything is threatened and, you know, we're in Casablanca, you know, and recognizing where we really are uh, helps us emerge from the ennui, the, 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 the alienation, the meaninglessness that attends that cushy life that is there on the surface. We've got to get underneath that subtext and meet each other heart to heart. And out of that, it's all good. A different thing happens. Wow. The emergence of a human superorganism. That's, that's a, a com complete unexpected answer. I, I, I love where you just took this. And I, I understand that, of course, it's a big question. And there, there's, there's no attempt to give one answer that conclusively kind of covers all sides of it. Terry, this was a very, very uh, inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for making the time for it. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that you'd like to, to offer at this point? Well, you know, uh, there may be a few people who listen to this who'd like to uh, explore these ideas more. And I'm going to be inviting people to take a, a 2019 as a, uh, a social experiment to engage with me and a few others in really trying to live a new pattern together, in, in engaging some of these ideas. Like, so it'll, it'll be like a, a virtual community, people from various parts of the world, really attempting to live that new pattern, to do the inner work, the outer work, and the interpersonal work at a different level. So I hope people will go to my website, uh, terrypatton.com, sign up to be on my mailing list, and mention their interest in the course, and, and we'll have some stuff up uh, uh, about it by the end of the year, beginning of next year. And I hope some, you know, some folks may wanna do what I'm talking about in the most intense way we can. We're gonna 
give it a shot for 11 months, then we're going to debrief, figure out, okay, what lessons do we learn from this? How can we advance other people's experiments based on what we've learned? So I'm going to try to practice what I preach. Brilliant. I will most certainly share the link to your website, terrypatton.com, also in the show notes. And when this episode gets posted, again, thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show. Thank you so much, Julian. It's been a pleasure. I always enjoy being with you and, and deepening our conversations. I hope you too enjoyed this episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or Spotify, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast, and join me and others in the conversation on Facebook, Green Planet, Blue Planet Podcast. Wherever you are, have yourself a summer day.